Amen. Would you please turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20 is where we will start today. And some of you will notice that Exodus 20 is where the Ten Commandments are written for the first time. So I don't preach every week, but when I do preach, uh, uh, I am now going through a short series of sermons on the topic of work. Now, work is really important for us to understand as Christians because we all work. And all Christians, uh, all non-Christians work too. So we have to understand how all of us human beings working as creatures of God is interlaced with but also distinguished from our work as Christians. In my first sermon, we explored uh, from Genesis 1 and 2 how God created the universe through his work, and he, of course, rested on the seventh day. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve sinned, and among other very important consequences, that ruined work. Our work then turned from good work into toil. Now, in my second sermon on work a month ago, we explored the concept of vocation and the, the calling That's what vocation is, calling. The calling that God gives each of us to do a particular work according to the gifts and talents that he gives us. We learned from several chapters in Exodus uh, about how God, after he brought the Israelites out uh, from slavery in Egypt, gave gifts of talent and ability to them, and in particular to a couple of Israelite artisans. He commanded them to make and build the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle and all of the tools of worship that Israel was commanded to use to worship Yahweh. They were called to that work. They were gifted for that work. They accomplished that work, and they did it to the letter. Now, for us, I use this this, uh, series of overlapping circles to illustrate how we might find our calling. Okay, so one of these circles is things that I am good at. Right, so if you're good at something, that's that's good. And then another circle which uh, might overlap completely, but probably not, is things that I enjoy. So there are things that you enjoy, but not good at. And then there's things that you are good at, uh, but you don't necessarily enjoy. And so hopefully they at least overlap some. And then there's this third circle, things that I can get paid for. Very important, right? Because if we're going to go and do work, we should get paid so that we can support ourselves. And hopefully there's some overlap there between the things that uh, I'm good at and the things that I enjoy. But even if not, then we should at least go and get paid for our work. And then I added a fourth circle as well. And this fourth circle are things that bless others. So again, like we have a circle of things that I'm good at, which don't necessarily overlap with the other three circles, things that I enjoy, things that I can get paid for, and things that bless others. And, you know, I I think that in the long run, the vision for your vocation might be that sweet spot where all four circles overlap. And we might consider that, you might consider that your vocation in the long run. Now, that being said, we do all things for God's glory. So whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, the scriptures say, do all for God's glory. And there's also the concept that, you know, vocation goes through seasons. So there are certain uh, seasons that you go through in life that you might not enjoy your work. You might not be good at your work. You might be in a season where you're not being paid for your work, right? Uh, So for example, students are not paid to be students, I don't think, for the most part. I think some maybe are. Uh, Mothers uh, and people who work at home for no pay nevertheless have work, and so they don't necessarily get paid in in money for work, but they, they are called to that, and that can be a season as well. So whatever the season that you're in, you, you are called to it. So it's not simply just this sweet spot in the middle that is the only thing that you should be aiming for, but whatever season God has you in, That is your calling for that season. Now, that brings us to today's sermon. I have called this sermon, Live to Work, 
work to live? And what I'm trying to get at is two errors that we can make in our attitude toward work. For some of us, work is the most important thing that we do, and we will sacrifice everything else for work. We have a word for that, workaholics. We live for work. Now, for others of us, uh, we don't like that work that much. It's kind of yucky. And so we slack off in our work. Uh, we only work because we have to. We work to live. Right? Now, there are three main points in my sermon. Right? And the first one, uh, the first two are neither idle, live to work, nor idle, work to live. Okay? All right. Work should neither be an idol, nor should we slack off and have some sort of idleness in our work. Neither idle, work to live, live to work rather, nor idle, work to live, right? Now, this idle, idle thing is not my phrase. I can't take credit for it. Uh, it's actually mentioned uh, in a couple of chapters in this book, in this book called The Gospel at Work by Sebastian Traeger and Greg Gilbert. Uh, we've gone through this book uh, as part of the men's group study uh, a few years ago, and it just so happens that, you know, we have a bunch of copies. So if you want a copy of this book, I'm going to leave this right up here next to the, uh, the Lord's Supper, and if you want them, take them, because they're free. So just take them. There might be a, 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 an envelope in there for a donation, so they're free to you. We've bought them. So if you want to make a donation to the church in order to cover the costs of you know, providing books to you, that is totally fine. We actually have a resource center, which is just outside these doors. Uh, the, all those books on those bookshelves are also free, and feel free to give a donation. The, the important point is not that you have the book, of course. It's that you read it and that you learn from it. So all of those books have been handpicked by Pastor Matt and the, and the leaders of the church so that you would have them and that you could read them and they'll go into your mind and then into your heart and that's the way God works. You know, faith, faith comes through hearing. Okay, so that is, uh, so I don't want to take credit for this idol, idol thing, this cute play on words that uh, comes from Traeger and Gilbert, but nonetheless, um, that is uh, one of the themes of my sermon today. Okay, so the first uh, a point on the outline is neither idle, which is the live-to-work attitude. Now, let's address work as an idol first. In last week's sermon, okay, if you were here, Vincent Baycote taught us from 1 Samuel chapter 8, and he said something that really caught my ear, because he said that one thing that we don't talk about much in church is idolatry. And I thought, that's perfect, because I'm going to talk about idolatry this week. So it was really great, uh, I, and I told him that afterwards. So I'm going to talk about idolatry, uh, not generally, and certainly not going super in-depth into just the concept of idolatry. Uh, uh, Dr. Baco did that for us last week. But I'm going to talk about idolatry in the context of work. Okay, so what is idolatry? Idolatry, well, let me actually start there. What is idolatry? The idolatry is very put very simply, the worship of an idol. And what is an idol? Well, we get a hint of it in the Ten Commandments, which is why I've asked you to turn to Exodus chapter 20. Okay, Exodus chapter 20, this is God talking to Moses, and he says this, chapter 20 says, Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of of slavery, okay? Then, commandment one, you shall have no other gods before me. Commandment two, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Those are just the first two. Right? So, 
uh, that gives us some kind of hint, right? Landon led us in this song a little bit earlier in the worship service, and uh, this song is the Ten Commandments song. So, so the, the, the Ten Commandments song comes from the New City can, uh, the, uh, the Catechism, right? So Landon wrote the music to it, but the words uh, are here. So this is a screenshot from the New City Catechism website. There's also books. Again, these books are in the entryway, so you can take them and like each page as you flip them is the question and the answer. And as Landon was telling us, we are supposed to to, you know, sort of like memorize the questions, memorize the answers, and this is a form of learning. And then to supplement that form of learning, we actually added music to it because music helps us learn, right? Uh, okay, so Landon had led us in this song earlier in the worship service, so you can kind of see, uh, it might be a little bit hard to see, but, you know, what is the law of God stated in the Ten Commandments? You shall have no other gods before me, right? You shall not make for yourself an idol, in the form of anything, in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Come on, join in. <laughs> Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false testimony. You shall not covet. This is what God commands, right? So we know this song. I know it a little bit better because Landon wrote the tune. Very exciting. Okay, so the first two commandments are, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. Okay? So just in the first commandment, we have some kind of hint in there because God could have said, I am God, and just left it at that, implying that there are no other gods. But he says explicitly, there are other gods, and that you shall have no other gods before me, in higher place than me. So that's commandment number one. And then he gets more explicit, and then he says, don't make idols, or don't make graven images, right, carved images. And what he says is don't make carved images of anything that's in the heavens above, on the earth, or under the earth. Okay, so create, and so like more generally, it's not just literally physical things, but it is any created thing, any created thing. And then this brings us to the next question that we sang, uh, what is idolatry? I won't sing this one for you, but what is idolatry? Idolatry is trusting in created things rather than the Creator, for our hope and happiness, significance, and security. Okay? Idolatry is trusting in created things, rather than the Creator, for our hope and happiness, significance, and security. So now we're starting to hone in on how work can become an idol. Right? Because work is a created thing. Work is something that, that we do. So, people in our culture really can trust in their work above all else, can't they? Right? Work can be their hope, right? hope and happiness, significant security. They can be their hope for the present and the future. Some people are striving with all of their being to achieve something at work. It could be a career that they aspire to, like firefighter or doctor or movie star, right? How many people come to Hollywood, uh, you know, trying to become famous? Uh, or even something, this kind of work like motherhood, right? I'll never forget talking to one dad here at church who uh, skipped church a lot uh, because of his kids' sports. And I asked him straight out one time, you know, what have you been doing when you're not at church? And he replied, you know, this sport. I said, oh, okay. And he, then he said something that I'll never forget, and it was so impactful. I wrote it down after we finished our conversation. You know, this was at church, so I, I just jotted it down in my notes. He said, these things are important to my kids. If you want a Division I scholarship and get college totally paid for, this is what you have to do. Now, just listen to the hope that is embodied 
in that statement. This is what you have to do. Right? So he's willing to sacrifice two hours of corporate worship with the church in order to do this other thing for the hope of a Division I scholarship uh, in this particular sport and get college totally paid for. So there's a lot of hope in there, right? Uh, or it could be the hope of achieving some higher status at your current work. Right? So, so you get some promotion and you're really gunning for some promotion. In the movie Top Gun, the Kelly McGillis character says, you know, I'm really gunning for a big promotion at work, and if I get that, I won't be here much longer, right? So she's using the Tom Cruise character in order to, 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 to get promoted to a big position in Washington, D.C., right? And, and we're at the tail end of election season, uh, and as, as you drive around and as you get lots of mailers, you, you see the same names coming up over and over again for different elected positions, but they're all for different positions, aren't they? So like the school board member wants to eventually become a city council person, right? Then, then you might want to run for re-election, run for election again because of term limits. So now you want to be a, a state assembly person or, or then a state senator. And then state senators, you know, want to become mayors and mayors want to become congressmen and congressmen want to become senators. People want to then like, take that next step up and, and become governors, right? So we have mayors running for governor, and then governors want to be president, and that sort of thing. Right? So you're always like gunning for that next promotion. People also derive a lot of happiness and satisfaction from their work, which I'll just say right now, and I'll say it a little bit more later, is not necessarily a bad thing. They, they do find significance in their work. You know, in particular, uh, we as a culture tend to derive a lot of significance from being called a certain title, like the CEO, or the president, or the vice president, or the chairman of the board, or regional manager, or whatever it is that gives you power at work and makes you feel important. And furthermore, our culture is a mass media and celebrity culture, so some people become famous for the work that they do. You know, uh, the obvious examples are, are sports stars and, and movie uh, stars and actors and that sort of thing, but you know, there's Elon Musk, Donald Trump, Mark Zuckerberg, Steve Jobs, Bill Gates. They're all famous because of their work. And in an earlier uh, generation, you, know, you would have heard the names John D. Rockefeller or Andrew Carnegie, J.P. Morgan. They were famous for their work and for being rich, and then they, you know, they propagated that by uh, donating money and uh, creating uh, buildings and, uh, and museums, right? That sort of thing. Right? So some people are going for that in terms of their significance. And then work can also bring security, right? After all, work is how most of us make money, and money buys things that we need, like food, clothing, and shelter. So hope, happiness, significance, and security. Now, notice work itself is not a bad thing. In fact, the whole point of my first sermon in this series is that work is a good thing. God himself worked from the beginning, and God ordained that human beings should also work, and that was all before sin entered the world through Adam's fall. Okay? And also, hope, happiness, significance, and security are also not bad things and, uh, in and of themselves. The Bible uh, talks a lot about all those things as being good things. Right? What we really have to be cautious about is that idolatry is a condition of the heart. It's not bad to want good things. But we veer into idolatry when we trust in good things as God things. Anything good can become an idol if we elevate it and we trust in that good thing over God himself. Idolatry can also be worshiping bad things, of course, too. But good things can, can be elevated into God things, into our hearts. So, just one thing. Now, back in 1991, there was a hit movie called City Slickers. The premise of the movie is that three guys from New York City go on a vacation out in the western United States to be cowboys for two weeks. Now, that's not everybody's idea of the perfect vacation, but that's kind of the point of the movie, right? It's a fish out of water, story, hilarity ensues. 
Uh, there's a famous scene in which the actual cowboy who was leading the group, Curly, played by Jack Palance, says to the main city slicker, played by Billy Crystal, he says, what's the secret of life? Just one thing. You stick to that and arrange everything else around it. That's not exactly how he said it, but that's how we're going to say it. You stick to that one thing. Billy Crystal says, oh, that's great. What is that one thing? And Curly replies, that's for you to figure out. Okay, as a Christian, we should say to that, yes, and amen. Right? Because we know what that one thing is. That one thing is God. That one thing is God. So what is God? God is the creator and the sustainer of everyone and everything. He is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his power and perfection, goodness and glory, wisdom, justice, and truth. Nothing happens except through him and by his will. Okay? He is all-powerful. He is everywhere. He is all-knowing. He is completely just. He is completely perfect. He is completely moral. He is also completely loving and gracious. God also is a being who exists as one being but in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They are same in substance, equal in power and glory. So, God the Father is God. God the Son is God. God the Holy Spirit is God. But they're different persons. So God the Father is not God the Son. And God the Son is not God the Holy Spirit. And God the Holy Spirit is not God the Father. Okay? So this is what we believe as Christians of, of who God is. What God is and who God is. And so this God being the, the most perfect being imaginable is worthy of our worship. So that one thing, that one thing that we should worship as Christians is God. Okay? There should be nothing else that is higher in priority for us in our hearts than God. You shall have no other gods before me. Okay? All right. So in theory, we Christians know that the one thing that Curly was talking about is God. The problem is do we truly believe and practically do we truly act like God is that one thing? Now, speaking for myself, and I think very likely for many of you, my heart is prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the one I love. I feel that my heart wants to idolize created things all the time because I'm a fallen, sinful human being. So this is something that we, we need to like, really understand, but also keep an eye on. We should guard our heart. All right. So let's turn now in the New Testament to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18. Gospel of Luke, chapter 18. And we're going to make this next point on the outline, which is that the rich young ruler lacked one thing. Okay, so Curly talked about the one thing. The rich young ruler lacked one thing. Luke chapter 18, verse 18. A ruler questioned Jesus, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And then he goes on and he says, You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. Okay. So, this is Jesus, right? Now, who is Jesus? Jesus is the Son of God. I mentioned God, one God in three persons. Jesus is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, who took on an entirely separate nature, a human nature. So he was God in nature from all eternity, no beginning, no end. But in human nature, God had, uh, not God, but Jesus had a, uh, beginning, which is conception, Virgin Mary. He was born. He lived a life of uh, perfect sinlessness and active obedience to, to God the Father. He kept all the commandments. 
and he died on the cross for our sins, was buried, was resurrected on the third day, ascended to heaven, and is now sitting at the right hand of God the Father. All in two, uh, two completely separate, but melded together in a way, uh, natures. God nature and a human nature in one person. Okay? That's Jesus. Okay, so Jesus is the one answering this question, and he answers the question, you know the commandments, keep the commandments. Do not commit adultery, commandment 8. Do not murder, commandment 6. Do not, uh, sorry, do not commit adultery, 7. Do not steal, commandment 8. Do not bear false witness, commandment 9. Honor your father and your mother, commandment 5. Okay, there's, uh, there are parallel um, uh, accounts of this story also in the Gospel of Matthew and the go- Gospel of Mark, and they, they have these commandments in slightly different order, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. And the young ruler says, verse 21, all of these things I have kept from my youth. Oh, good for you. Now, when Jesus heard this, Jesus said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when the young ruler had heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Okay? He was extremely sad because he was extremely rich. Okay, so what is the idea here? He was not willing to do what Jesus said, which is to follow Jesus. Right? Jesus is saying, not explicitly in this passage, but he's saying, I'm God. You shall have no other gods before me. Follow me. And, you know, even if we take the rich young ruler's words at face value, and there's good reason to believe that we shouldn't, that he didn't actually keep all of these things from his youth. We've preached about this before from this pulpit, but nonetheless, even if we take those words at face value, he was still not willing to do this other thing, which is to sell all of his property, give it away, and follow Jesus. So in other words, he had something else right above God. He wants to inherit eternal life. He said that. He's, he's asking about it. But he has something. He has a God that's above, above God. Right? So he's actually breaking commandments 1 and 2, even though he says he's, he's keeping all the other commandments from his youth. Right? Now, it's important to note that God is not telling all of us to sell everything that we own, give it to the poor, and, and follow Jesus. He's telling this particular individual to do this particular thing because Jesus, being God, knows this man's heart, and he's saying, this is the idolatry that you need to repent of, and then you need to follow me. So he's trying to pry, he's, he's, he's exhorting this man to, to pry the idol from his heart and then come and follow Jesus. And, and he says no. He says no. Jesus looked at him, and, and in Matthew and Mark it says he looked at him with a great love. And Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Elsewhere, Jesus taught that you cannot worship both God and wealth, right? Because God knows that money and wealth is one of those idols that really uh, has a, a very strong, heart, uh, strong hold on the human heart. Okay. So that's why, why he says this. So this gives us some, uh, some insight as well into what it means to have work as an idol. Uh, We'll go back to verses 26 to 30 uh, a little bit later, but basically the idea is this. If if work has become an idol for us, then we need to recognize that. And and frankly, we need to repent of our idolatry. Now, unfortunately for us, we don't often see the idolatry in our own hearts. It's really easy to see the idols of another culture, you know, isn't it? It's really easy to look at, let's say, Hindu culture and to... Uh, and to say, oh my gosh, there's all these like, you know, hundreds of gods there and these like temples and they're all made of gold and painted with red, that sort of thing. It's really easy to see uh, an idol there. It's really easy to look at 
I don't know, Native American culture and see a totem pole or something like that. It's really easy to read the Bible and then to read about uh, the Israelites falsely worshiping the Baals uh, or the Asherah, which is another kind of like uh, totem pole type of thing, um, and say, oh, that's so silly, isn't it? I lived in Hong Kong for a while, and uh, one of the things that you do is you go to a temple with uh, fake paper money, then you go to... Uh, and then you burn the paper money in front of, you know, in the temple, and then, you know, that's, you know, that rises up to smoke to, to the, the god of money, who is then, you know, supposed to give you more money, right? This, you know, Hong Kong is like trying to get rich. And, you know, to us, that just sounds like the most stupid, like ridiculous form of superstition that you could possibly imagine. Uh, and, the, and yet, you know, we have $2 billion uh, lottery winners, right? So, you know, so like uh, it's really easy to see the idols in, in another culture, but it's not so easy to see the idols of our own culture, and it's easy, even harder to identify idolatry in our own hearts. Since, as the prophet Jeremiah tells us, the heart is deceitful above all else and desperately sick. So therefore, I've included on your sermon outline a few questions to reflect on, right? And uh, this is, these are things that you can reflect on in your own time, or, or you can uh, get together with your trusted Christian uh, friends to help you. Uh, and most importantly, pray and ask God, as the psalmist writes, search me, O God, and know my heart. Right? See if there be any hurtful way in me. Right? So question two says, as a, hope, as a source of hope and happiness, significance and security and satisfaction, where does work rank for you? Um, now, it's allowed for work or anything else to be a source of happiness, significance, security, and satisfaction, but not the number one source, right? The number one source needs to be God in Christ. Number three, uh, question three, how much is your work about making a name for yourself? You know, this question is trying to get at the significance aspect. You know, why, why are you working for that promotion? Does a title really mean that much to you? Are you trying to get that corner office? Do you wish that people at work deferred to you and kowtow to you and brown-nosed you? Are you trying to win awards at the company meeting? If so, why? Is it for your glory or is it for God's? Question four, how much is your work about making a difference in this world, the emphasis being in this world? Right? Of course, we should want to make a difference in this world. The abolitionists of race-based slavery, like William Wilberforce, were profoundly right to want to make a difference in this world. The anti-abortion movement is profoundly right to want to save babies' lives. But if we focus too much on this world, then we might neglect two things. One, we might neglect God's purposes for us. After all, we are stuck in a, you know, we do not... Uh, sorry, we are primarily concerned with people's everlasting souls. We do not want to get stuck in a form of social gospel where we do profoundly correct things for people in their mortal lives, but we never preach the good news of Jesus Christ to them for forgiveness of sin and everlasting salvation. And number two, we might neglect other godly responsibilities, right? We, we might be so focused on our work that our families or marriages are neglected. We might be so focused on doing some things that we neglect coming to church or even choose to do those things rather than uh, things at home or, or going to church. Right? So the point is, is this. If work is a false god, that is a very bad thing. We should repent. Last week, Vincent Baycote uh, preached to us that idols are terrible gods to worship because idols demand more and more from you and return less and less. Work can be like that. There will always be another project. There will always be something else to do. There will always be a what's next. Now, if you worship God above all else, then you can pursue those things, and God will give you peace and satisfaction for the things that He gives you the grace to accomplish. But if you worship the work itself, work will never be satisfied as an idol, and neither will you. The rich young ruler made a deadly mistake with everlasting consequences. Let us not make the same mistake. Don't climb the ladder of success only to find out at the end that the whole time it was leaning against the wrong wall.
Now let's turn from idolatry to a different kind of error. We want to not only avoid work becoming an idol, but we also want to be, uh, avoid being idle in our work. Neither idol nor idol. Idolatry, as we've seen in the outline, could be an attitude of, I live to work. But idleness, on the other hand, could be more of an attitude of, ah, I work to live. So what are some of the ways in which we slack off? Okay? Uh, this idol, idol thing is a play on words. I don't necessarily mean literally doing no work, being completely idle. That is a problem, of course, and we do see that sometimes in our culture. Right? There are some people who don't work at all, and especially in the last few years with COVID, with PPP, with extended unemployment benefits, uh, you have a really perversion of the incentive to work, right? Because if the government is going to uh, send you $800 through direct deposit, you don't even have to go to the bank to deposit. It just like shows up in your bank account, you know, per week, you know, which, you know, 40 hours times $20, hours, $20 an hour is $800. You know, like why on earth, and we actually, I've actually had people say this to me, why would I, you know, take a job for $15 an hour, you know, $40 an hour to make, to make uh, $600 a week when the government's just going to send me $800 a week. Right? So literally, they're just not doing anything until the, those benefits uh, uh, run out. So I, I, complete idleness is a problem. Uh, but it can also f- take other forms, right? You could kind of have this like, bad attitude of like, ah, my work doesn't matter. My work doesn't matter, so you know, why should I you know, give my 100%? My work is not important. It doesn't matter. No one's going to care, right? Or you could say, work isn't my passion. Or, you know, like we were talking about vocation earlier, work isn't my, this particular work isn't my calling, so I'm going to, like, you know, drag my heels, you know, give, give a half-hearted effort into it. Uh, work, could, you could have an attitude of just getting, doing the minimum to just get by, right? Um, you know, my parents told me to clean the kitchen, so I'm going to, you know, kind of do it, but... It's not going to be really clean. It's going to be sort of like tidied up a little bit. Right? Or work can be a means to an end. Right? I, I, I'm doing work, but I, I'm, I'm working to live because I, I like what work gives me, which is money, and I want to you know, meet my own selfish wants you know, for that. Okay, so quickly, quickly I want to uh, talk a little bit about how not to work. And for this, I want to, us to uh, turn to 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Now, there's a lot potentially to unpack here. This, this whole passage could be a sermon in and of itself. But 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 6. Now, the context of Thessalonians, both letters, the first letter and the second letter to the Thessalonians, is that the Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Thessalonica, saying that, you know, uh, primarily talking about what is happening in the end times. What happens at the, at the end? Well, he talks in 1 Thessalonians about how uh, about how the church is going to be raptured and meet Jesus. And then the, the, and then the, Lord of, uh, the day of the Lord is going to come and like everything is going to end, you know, uh, not end, but it, with the great tribulation. And he goes on in 2 Thessalonians to talk about that as well. And he talks about the day of the Lord and about how uh, there's the Antichrist that's going to come. So all of these like very important uh, things, but he also talks about some other things that are very important in the context of that. So how should we live in that context? And in 1 Thessalonians, he talks about sexual purity, and he also talks about work, okay? And Thessalonians, right at the end here, he, he has some application points, which is, again, about work. So in verse 6, we say, now, he says, now, we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life, and not according to the tradition which you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with labor and hardship we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you, because, not because we do not have the right to do this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. 
For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. But as for you, brothers, do not grow weary of doing good. All right, so a few notes on this, right? How not to work. Uh, unruly, uh, which is mentioned here in the passage, and also undisciplined, which is used twice. It's actually the same word in Greek, okay? It's just uh, in our particular version of the Bible, it's translated into two different English words, but unruly is the same as undisciplined, which is basically that you have no work ethic. You're not working, right? You're not working hard. You're not working in the proper way, right? And then the tradition that you received from us is, is how you're supposed to work. In 1 Thessalonians 4.11, he writes, uh, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your business and work with your hands just as we commanded you, so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. Okay, so in other words, don't be a freeloader, right? And don't uh, mind other people's business, attend to your own business. Uh, verses 7 through 9, he talks about um, following our example, and he's talking about himself and the other ministry workers where, you know, uh, they have a right to work on, on behalf of the gospel for the church, that's there, and then to be supported by the church. But he says, we, we didn't do that, not because we don't have a right to do that. We, we actually went bivocational, and we did whatever work that was there to, to earn our own money to, so that we could support ourselves with our own bread, so that we wouldn't be a burden on you, and so that we would, uh, we would um, uh, be a model for you, right? Okay, so, so follow example. And then... In verse 10, he says, when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. Right? So in other words, no free handouts for the person who's not willing to work. Right? Which I think actually you know, provides us a really good basis for public policy and unemployment benefits. Right? So in theory, if you've ever applied for unemployment, I unfortunately have, then you know, every two weeks they send you a little form and you're supposed to check this box. Did you, look for week? Uh, did you look for work in the last two weeks? And you just check the box and send it back in. They give you unemployment benefits. That's very nice. Right? It's good. It's, it's good to have that because uh, unemployment benefits is one of the things that we as a society feel like is, is important to provide for people who are temporarily out of work. But the idea is that you should be willing to work. And you should be looking for work as a sign of your willingness to work. And then you have to tell the truth by checking the, the yes box instead of the no box. If you check the no box, you don't get the unemployment benefits, right? But who's checking to see whether you're actually looking for work? Nobody. We're not held to account. So I would say this is not good public policy. And that other thing that I uh, talked about earlier where you just get money, you know, auto-deposited into your, into your account, you know, maybe without anybody checking on you without accountability is, is bad public policy. So at church here, you know, we have, we have various different ministries that, that take care of people. You know, uh, our, our congregational care fund, our food pantry, right? So these things, but as pastors and as other ministry workers, we want to, like, love people, which is to commit our, our will to the true good of others, which means that we don't just give handouts and then not expect people to be, you know, uh, sorry, and expect people just to, to, to freeload off of it, right? So we're not, we're not in that business, you know, like there's different reasons why people uh, are in need. There are different reasons why people need help, and so we want to meet the need, but we also want to get at the deeper reasons, right? And public policy-wise, we should, we should do this as well. So, you know, just this one verse might give us some more insight into um, into public policy and how, how, how our government might, might should, should do things, right? Um, okay, so uh, verse 11, okay, so here is how not to work. You're leading an undisciplined life. You have no uh, work ethic. You're not actually doing any work at all. You're acting like busybodies, 
Okay, so this acting like busybodies uh, in the Greek has this sense of wasting energy on useless things, right? Uh, and in fact, you suck away other people's productivity. So you've probably worked with somebody like this, right? You're trying to get your work done, and they come and like talk to you and bother you, and maybe it's under some guise of you know doing some kind of work or talking about work or something like that, or maybe gossiping about this boss or that worker or whatever, and you just like wasting time and you're wasting energy and you're acting like busybodies. So unfortunately we have, you know, things like this at church sometimes too, where you like, what you really should be doing is like leading your family and praying and reading your Bible every day and like thinking about, you know, ways in which you could grow in holiness and Christ-likeness, but instead you're in other people's business. Oh, you should do this, Pastor Tony. You should do this, Pastor Matt. And, uh, you know, so-and-so should do this and we should have a ministry on this. It's like, okay, thank you, right? Thank you. Thank you so much. So doing no real work, wasting energy on useless things, sucking away other people's productivity, acting like busybodies, right? So such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's pretty strong. It's a strong encouragement. It's a command. Work in quiet fashion. <laughs> Mind your own business. And make money so you can eat your own bread. and Don't freeload off of others. Okay, so that's how not to work. That's how not to work. There are uh, many proverbs from the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament that is, that talk about how the lazy sluggard is evil and will experience bad consequences, but the diligent will be rewarded by God. We read a couple of the longer passages at the beginning of the worship service, um, and I found at least 20 more verses in the Proverbs about diligence versus laziness, and there is a lot about work in Ecclesiastes as well, as well as other parts of the, the Scriptures. So there's a lot in the Scriptures um, about, about working hard. Next, how to work, okay, how to work. Uh, and for this, I want to turn to Colossians chapter 3 and also Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9, okay. These are two uh, very parallel passages. Colossians and Ephesians cover a lot of the same ground. These are also written by the Apostle Paul, and I don't have uh, a ton of time to go into all of the details of, of the context of this. But uh, in these two passages, which uh, you know, are separated in, you know, in, in our Bibles by just a few passages, so I'm going to flip back and forth a little bit. And I'm also going to uh, give us on the screen here um, the two par the passages uh, T together, and we'll just, we'll just go through this. Okay, so um, without reading uh, both of them, uh, let me just read Ephesians 6, 5 through 8, uh, and then we'll, we'll follow along with the Colossians, right? Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men-pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. Okay, so one thing I, I definitely should mention, because we're Americans, and the word slave has, you know, a lot of emotional content for us, because we understand slavery in our country historically um, as like a very particular thing, race-based slavery in which human beings are literally uh, kidnapped, sold, and then bought as property like animals um, by other human beings. And we are dealing with the uh, consequences of slavery even to this day and, and probably, if we're being honest, for generations to come. So, that is not the same kind of slavery from 2,000 or more years ago, which is what the Apostle Paul is talking about. Nevertheless, slavery in the uh, Greek or the Roman um, area was a uh, particular type of slavery where human beings are owned. It wasn't necessarily uh, race-based. And Pastor Matt has also preached on this um, you know, at, at quite a bit more length. But I wanted to say that, that you know, in this context, uh, slaves mean something different than, than what we understand to, you know, in, in the slave states in the, in the southern United States uh, for you know, uh, centuries. But, uh, and then he also addresses masters. And so uh, in the slaves and the masters 
the application that we can take for this, even though uh, there's probably a lot more to unpack with this, the application that we can can take is you know, sort of like employees and managers or employees and business owners. Okay, so this is kind of the application. So slaves, uh, first of all, be obedient, and that's, that's in, in both of the passages. And be obedient is, uh, first of all, slaves is the same word, and be obedient also uh, is the, the same in both passages, right? Those who are masters according to the flesh. So masters is the same word kurios, which is what we use for the Lord Jesus. Okay, so Lord or masters. And then according to the flesh and on earth is also the exact same phrase in the Greek. So really it could be translated the exactly the same, but according to the flesh or according is, is saying that, look, it might be your calling in this season of life or in your life or the rest of your life to be um, you know, in this position, right? But when it comes to your inherent worth, your, your slavery or your, your masterhood, for that matter, is only on earth according to the flesh, right? Because your inherent worth is not bound up in that, okay? So, okay, obey those who are, are, are the masters according to the flesh on earth, okay? With fear and trembling, fearing the Lord, right? It's, it's, it's parallel over here, and it doesn't necessarily mean like being uh, a coward or being literally afraid, but have it rather being in reverence, okay? So revering the Lord, okay? It's, it's uh, parallel. With sincerity of heart, okay? So do it wholeheartedly, right? This is how you should work, uh, sincerely, right? Um, not by way of eye service, and in the Colossians passage, is not with external service. And again, this is very interesting to me in doing this study because this is exactly the same Greek phrase, right? And the, the eye service part, it's, it's literally ophthalmal doulos, ophthalmal doulos. Like, so like ophthalmology, right, is, is about the eyes, right? And then doulos is the same word for, for slave, which is, you know, or service, right? So ophthalmal doulos. Eye service. And what does this mean? Not by way of eye service. In other words, don't just show up and put in FaceTime, right? Don't just go through the motions, but you're supposed to do it wholeheartedly with sincerity of heart, right? So not just going through the motions by way of eye service. And um, not as men pleasers, okay? Again, those who merely please men, literally the exact same word in the Greek, right? So what is men pleasers? Oh, I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to, you know, get by and to like act like I'm working hard for my boss, right? But when he's not watching or when she's not watching, I'm going to slack off, right? So not as men pleasers, right? Don't be a brown noser, right? But from the heart, we've kind of covered that, right? Whatever you do, do your work heartily, right? Doing the will of God, rendering service, uh, do your work heartily. This is all uh, kind of, you know, the, again, the same kind of concept. This is, this is really the, the heart of the command. Do your work. Whatever your work is, you're called to do. Go and do it, right? Render service, right? Okay, then it says this, right? So you're not supposed to, you, you're supposed to work for your, your earthly masters, your earthly employers, your earthly boss, but do it as if you were working for the Lord and not for men. As for the Lord and rather, rather than for men. So yeah, my kids, uh, I tell them to do something at home. They should go do it. But really, they shouldn't do it just because they respect me, honor me, you know, love me, or whatever. But they should do it because, because, you know, because they should worship. It's an act of worship to God. So similarly for us as, as employees, right, we also want to work wholeheartedly as if Jesus, who, by the way, is watching, he's omnipresent, so as, as if Jesus were watching, as if you were working for the Lord, right? So this is, a good, this is a good way to work, as to Christ, as to the Lord, right? As slaves of Christ, and in Colossians it says, it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Now this is really fascinating because, right, didn't Christ come to set the captives free? He did. But he also came, sort of ironically and paradoxically, to make us slaves, not but he set us free from slavery, uh, from slavery to sin, and then he sets us free from that, but he also makes us slaves to himself. And, and Christ is the best master anyone could ever hope to serve, because actually serving Christ as Lord is freedom. Right? So we, want to, we actually want to be slaves to Christ, 
We want to be slaves to Christ. We want to enslave ourselves to Christ. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Okay? And then he gets into this. Knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord. And in Colossians, you know, knowing that you will receive the reward for inheritance. There is a whole theology around the theology of rewards. Okay? And this actually brings us back a little bit to the rich young ruler, right? Which we left the last few verses off. In verses 28 to 30, Peter said, "Um, Behold, we have left our homes and followed you. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for uh, the sake of the kingdom of God. And the parallel accounts in Matthew and Mark add, For my sake and for the gospel's sake, There's no one who's left all those things who will not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come eternal life, right? Again, God is going to give us rewards for the work that we do for him and more than make up for the things that we give up for him, okay? All right? So, and then later uh, in this last phrase, just in this uh, bit, right, there's whether slave or free and without partiality. So God is a God that uh, doesn't play favorites. He doesn't care what your status in life is. Okay? We are all equal before him. So whether we're the uh, boss or the employee, whether we're slaves or free, whether we're the master or whatever, right? there is no partiality with God. Right? There is no partiality with God. We're going to see this in, in the next, sli- uh, next slide as well, which then he says this, right? Uh, masters, do the same things. Right? In other words, uh, do... Um, do your work heartily, work for, uh, uh, like, serve, render service to your slaves, right, in the same way as though you were working for God and not for yourself. Do the same thing to them, okay? Give up threatening, it says in uh, Ephesians, and then in Colossians it says, masters, grant your slaves justice and fairness, right? Again, in in the law, you are supposed to not oppress your, um, your workers. You are supposed to treat them with justice. You're supposed to treat them with fairness. Okay, why? Knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven. Okay, so as bosses, what do we think about that, right? Because some of us are, are, are bosses and we have employees that work for us. Some of us are managers, uh, maybe middle management. We have people working for us, but we also have people uh, in authority over us. I, for example, I'm a pastor in the church, so I uh, exercise authority. I also exercise authority at home uh, and in other arenas, but I'm also a man under authority. There's the chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus, and also there's a lead uh, pastor here at church, Pastor Matt, and, you know, he is uh, the first among equals, but nonetheless, he's my boss, so, right, so I'm a man under authority as well, all right, so we have different roles, and we know that we should treat the people who are in authority under us like with justice and mercy and with grace and not sinfully because we also have a master and we, we want to be treated a certain way. And then you see there that, that, the, that in the Ephesians passage, there is no partiality with God, right? I just couldn't fit it all in one slide, but that, that partiality thing, whether slave or free, there's no partiality with God, all right? Okay? So... So as bosses, like as managers, what we do is we also serve, okay? We just serve by leading, right? Pastor Matt and I, we serve at church. We serve by leading, right? In the home, as, as husband and as father, I serve by leading, right? So uh, this, is, this is what we do. This is, this is the right way to work, okay? All right, so let us conclude. Last point on your outline is, uh, is this. The Lord Jesus has worked to free us from having to be perfect in our work. In conclusion, how do we answer these questions? Do we live to work? Should we merely work to live? Why should we make work neither an idol nor be idle in our work? Okay, so neither work nor any other created thing should be our idol. God is a good God and worthy to be worshipped above all else. He commanded it that way. Work, on the other hand, is a terrible false god to worship. Like all idols, work will promise you benefits and may provide them for a period of time, but eventually will abuse and betray you. 
Sin is like that. Work is a good thing, but should not be made into a God thing. And on the other hand, slacking off in our work is also a failure to worship God properly. Because work is one of the ways in which we glorify and worship God. God the Father is working to this day, said Jesus. Jesus did his work and continues to work at his Father's right hand. And God the Holy Spirit is at work in us. So yes, we should work and we should do our work well. But I don't want you to miss this. Don't miss the following. The Lord Jesus has freed us from having to be perfect in our work. Look, you could be the best CEO, manager, worker. You could be the most successful business person or entrepreneur. You could be the most productive worker there is. You could become rich and become the most generous philanthropist and donator of lots of money that makes people's lives better. But you and I will always fall short of the glory of God because we are sinful. Could you imagine having to be the absolutely perfect worker your whole entire life? What if the punishment for one tiny slip-up at work was getting fired? Or even worse, the punishment, uh, because you're a slave or something, right, is to be beaten to death. Right? Imagine that you do everything perfectly, but for one moment, instead of giving 100%, you give 99%, just for a moment. And for that slip-up, you get the ultimate punishment. That standard of perfection is in one sense what God demands of us from his law. Because he is perfectly holy. Jesus said, you are to be perfect, for your heavenly Father is perfect. And God knows, though, God knows that this standard is impossible for us to achieve. So when Jesus tells the rich young ruler, follow the commandments, Jesus knows that it's impossible for a sinful human being to keep the commandments perfectly. So when the rich young ruler answers back to him, I have kept all of the commandments from my youth, wrong answer. The right answer is, there is no way that I could have ever kept the commandments perfectly. Lord, have mercy on me. But God is also gracious. He is infinitely gracious. And I say he is infinitely gracious because he gave an infinite gift, his own son. For God so loved the world. He loved the world in this way, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus is perfect. Jesus was perfect in his mortal human life. Jesus did keep the commandments perfectly. He did fulfill the law. He is the eternal Son of God who became incarnated and took on a human nature. He lived a life of perfect, active obedience without sin. And then he gave himself up in passive obedience to the Father on the cross. And when his life was ebbing away, as he hung on the cross, he declared, it is finished, to Telestai, signifying that he performed his work perfectly and completely. Jesus died on the cross for us. Jesus paid a debt that he did not owe because we owe a debt that we cannot pay. So the question that the rich young ruler asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You know, this question was asked by another man some decades later. The jailer in the city of Philippi. The answer to him was the answer to us. Right? The answer to him was the answer to us. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Acts 16.31 When you believe in the Lord Jesus, God counts that as righteousness. There's no work there. You believe and God counts it as righteousness. And he graciously grants us forgiveness and salvation. From Abel to Noah to Abraham to Moses to David to the apostles to us, 
That is the only way anyone has ever been saved, by trusting in God. Specifically, trusting in God the Son, by the grace of God the Father, through the power of God the Holy Spirit. Then when we heed Jesus' call to follow me, when we enslave ourselves to Christ as our Lord and Master, then, ironically, we get freedom. Because Jesus is the best master that anyone could ever serve. We are then free from the stress of having to be perfect workers. We can fall short. Right? Not that we would ever purposefully want to slack off, but we don't have the pressure of performing perfectly. So come, come follow Jesus. Trust in him. Put your faith in him for your salvation. Part of the work that our good Lord and Master Jesus calls us to do is to tell other people about him. Go and preach the gospel to the entire creation, the, gospel, uh, the scripture says. Make disciples, the scripture says. So those are our work orders as we leave this place for this week and for every week. We go to work in our homes. We go to work in our neighborhoods. We go to work in our workplaces. We be good workers so that... When we share the good news of Jesus Christ, people will say, yeah, I like you at work. You're good to have around. Tell me more about this Jesus. Okay. And lastly, part of us declaring the good news of Jesus is a little meal that we share here at church, the Lord's Supper. On the night Jesus was uh, betrayed, uh, uh, on the night before Jesus gave his life, for us on the night before his work was finished, he took the bread and the wine and he said that when we eat it, we remember him and we declare his death until he comes. And in fact, it's the catechism question for this week, and I've printed it for you on, on the back of your outline. Um, it, is, it is this, right? It is, uh, what is the Lord's Supper? Christ commanded all Christians to eat bread and to drink from the cup in thankful remembrance of him and his death. The Lord's Supper is a celebration of the presence of God in our midst, bringing us into communion with God and with one another, feeding and nourishing our souls. It also anticipates the day when we will eat and drink with Christ in his Father's kingdom. So that's the memorized question for this week. So memorize it this week. Keep it memorized so that you'll always have a concise and correct answer when someone asks you, what is the Lord's supper. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this word. We thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, our, our Lord and our master. We thank you, God, for this meal that we are about to take, and we thank you, God, that we can remember Jesus through it. Uh, be with my friends as we take this meal, as we give our financial offerings, and as we, as we lift up these songs of worship to close our worship service. We thank you for these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.